Well, it is, uh, it is so nice to be uh, with you this morning. Um, like Mike said earlier, my name is Scott uh, Mullenberg. I'm the pastor at uh, First CRC up in Edgerton. Uh, that is about three and a half hours away. And uh, if you're wanting to know how many people live in Edgerton, maybe just combine this room by like four. And uh, that's how many people live in the town that I'm a part of. Um, my family and I make up seven of those people, uh, my wife and I, and then our five children. Uh, that are all under the age of six and a half. Uh, so prayers with my wife uh, this weekend. Um, I will be heading back right after the service uh, to relieve her. Um, uh, I love this church. Um, I love coming back to OBC. Uh, I love Pat and Chris and Mike Holloway and Mike Grimes. And uh, I know many of you, some of you I do not know. Um, but it's just such a pleasure to be back here. I've been shaped uh, so much uh, over my years by this church. Uh, I do have this on Pat. Um, he is, I think you know this, he's a very cool guy. Uh, he's a very hip guy. Um, I like his, he likes his glasses. Uh, he likes his coffee. I have him beat on one front. Um, he has only some of his hair spiked. I have all of my hair spiked. It's just very short, so you can't see it. Um, so I, uh, I love being here, and it's a pleasure to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, we're going to be focusing our attention this morning mostly on verses 4 to 9 of Isaiah 53, but I'm actually going to pick up reading uh, back in Isaiah 52 in verse 13 to set a context uh, for our text this morning. As we turn to God's word, let's, uh, let's turn to the author of this word and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful that it is clear, that it is true, that it interprets reality for us. Uh, Lord, we are not left alone to figure out who we are, who you are, what we are to be doing in this world, how we are to have peace with you. We are not left alone to try to come up with answers to any of those questions and more. You have given us your word, and it is a pure word. Every mouth, every word that comes from the mouth of God is righteous because you yourself are righteous. And so you speak only what is true. And so, Lord, we need truth this morning about what Jesus Christ has done for his people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to live by this word. For we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Follow along, if you would, people of God, to Isaiah 52, verse 13, and I'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 53. Listen to this. This is God's holy word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, we have a lot of puzzles in our house. Um, with five children under the age of six and under, we have a lot of puzzles sitting around our house. We like to do puzzles. One of the most frustrating things about puzzles, you know this, is when pieces don't fit like they ought to. Maybe a piece doesn't go in the spot that you're trying to shove it in there and it doesn't work. Maybe pieces over the years have gotten bent and bent out of shape and bruised and broken and they don't fit like they're supposed to. And we have in our house that situation a lot and people get frustrated. We have tears and sadness and sorrow and stress and angst. And that's just me. That has nothing to do with my kids. I want the pieces to fit like they're supposed to fit. Sometimes we come across passages and verses sometimes in the Bible that make us think, how does, how does that fit? In the opening chapters of Isaiah, if you were looking for a summary of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 through Isaiah chapter 2 verse 5 would be a great summary to show you what the book of Isaiah is about as a whole. And it's a train wreck for the people of Israel. God says that they are like his children who don't know him. 
They have rebelled. They have turned astray. They have gone aside. They have rejected God. They have rejected his word. Their worship is a sham. And right in the middle of that section, right in the middle of chapter 1, God says this to the people of Israel. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And you're left saying, how, how does that fit? How, how can a God who is just and a God who is holy and righteous and who cannot look on anything impure, how can he possibly say to his people, your sins are like scarlet. We know that. That's clear. But they'll be white as snow. How does that fit? How does that puzzle piece fit? And Isaiah is, is working towards giving us an answer. And we find the culmination of that here in Isaiah 53. Now we're going to open this text up this morning in four parts. I have four uh, questions for us that I want to think about together. First question. What is happening in Isaiah 53, 4 to 9? What is, what is happening? Someone is clearly suffering. We know that. Someone is very clearly suffering. But who is this person whom he calls my righteous servant in verse 11? Who is this? Well, the servant songs, as they are called in Isaiah, there are four of them. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 53, the culmination of those passages. And this, this servant is described in those previous songs in this way. Isaiah 42 says about the servant, this servant is one in whom I, that is the Lord, delight. The Lord loves this servant. The spirit of wisdom is said to rest on this servant. He is the spirit, the, the spirit of, or the spirit, the Holy Spirit rests on this servant. In Isaiah 49, the Lord says, this servant is the one in whom I will display my splendor, my glory, my majesty. The servant himself in Isaiah 50 says, I have not been rebellious. So he's righteous. He is holy. He is a law keeper. He's like, he's, he's very similar to the man that we saw in Psalm 1. The man who dwells upon the law of the Lord and finds in it his delight. That's this servant. Marked by absolute justice and righteousness. This servant is honored in the eyes of the Lord. So when this servant shows up, what would you expect to happen? You would expect a servant who's been described like this to be met by crowds of adoring people. Here's the righteous servant, the righteous king, the one whom the Lord delights in, the one in whom is the spirit of wisdom. And that's just not what we find, is it? Isaiah 53 verse or Isaiah 52 verse 14 says that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He was disfigured. Christ came not as the one who was embraced lovingly and willingly. Christ came and he was the one who was despised and rejected by men. 
Verse 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. And so we're left wondering, if the, if the Lord honors this servant, why doesn't anybody else? Why, don't, why doesn't anybody else honor this servant? He is suffering, and it's not metaphorical. Look at verse 4. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's, that's emphatic. Surely. It's not metaphorical. It's not just exaggerated, rhetorical, flowery speech that kind of amps up a little bit more than is realistic his suffering. This is how he is suffering. He is in the throes of anguish. And notice too the pronouns. It's all singular. When Christ comes and suffers and dies on the cross, He's abandoned by all of his disciples. He's alone. He, it's, it's him who was wounded for our transgressions. This is not a team effort, so to speak. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. Whatever is happening right now with this servant, we're going to talk about that, but whatever he is going through is no low-grade, entry-level kind of suffering. This is like full-throttle, pedal-to-the-floor kind of suffering that he's going through. So much so that he is beyond human semblance. So much so that if you and I were there, we would look away. We wouldn't let our kids see Christ on the cross. Because Isaiah says it's going to be that anguishing for him. So someone is suffering. This servant is suffering. Second question, why is this servant suffering? Verses four to six. A couple options. Why could he be suffering? Maybe that's helpful. Why could Christ Jesus, why could this suffering servant be suffering in this way? What are some options? Well, he could be suffering for sins of his own. God is the judge. God sits on his throne and he judges people for their actions. When those actions do not conform with his law, we call that sin. So God is perfectly within his right to judge those who sin. Maybe that's why he's suffering. It could also be that maybe he's a notorious criminal and the authorities want to make an example of him. If you dare cross the line, you will suffer like this man suffered. But we know neither one of those can be the case. Because what does verse 11 say of chapter 53? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. God's own verdict on this servant is that he is absolutely righteous. Absolutely righteous. He's a law keeper. He's the man of Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of the Lord and who is upright and godly and holy. So why is he then suffering? Why is this servant suffering in this way? Very simply, he is suffering for the sins of his covenant people. One of the major problems for the people of Israel, if not the major problem, was that a holy God 
commanded them to be holy, and they weren't. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 that I mentioned earlier says this about the people of Israel. They are a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. That is who Christ came to atone for. That is who He came to save. And before, lest you or I think, well, this isn't us. That's your heart. And that's my heart outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? By birth, I don't have peace with God. If anything, there is enmity and hostility. I am at war with my creator whom I was made to worship and serve and to worship and glorify forevermore. We're at war with him. And so are the people of Israel here. They have rebelled. They do not know the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. The Lord even goes so far as to call the people of Israel, likening them to Sodom and Gomorrah. It can't get worse than that in the Old Testament. So why is this servant suffering? He is suffering for the sins of his people. That is that great exchange that we talk about sometimes. Christ for his people. Suffering, exchanging of places. It is not that he, Christ, the servant, is suffering for one per. It's not a one-to-one ratio. It's one for the many. Christ for his people. Notice the pronouns here again. Verse 5. He, singular, was wounded for our, plural, transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Maybe you think, well, that's a bit extreme. Why does, why does God take sin so seriously? Why does he take things so seriously? Do, does he not have categories for honest mistakes versus moral rebellion? And the truth of the matter is, my friends, that all of it, all of our sins are moral rebellions against the Lord. And we, we know how to make distinctions like that, even in our own lives, don't we? As image bearers made in God's image to reflect His care. You and I know how to make distinctions like that between mistakes and moral rebellion. So if you had a UPS driver who came to your house and they accidentally delivered your package to your neighbor's house and then brought it to you the next day and said, I'm really sorry, I got the wrong address. You'd say, what would you say? You'd say, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Happens to everybody. Not that bad. But now imagine that if someone, if you were waiting for maybe medical supplies for your husband or your wife or your child or your parent, and those medical supplies got delivered to your door and your neighbor came and took them and you found out about it, Not in a million years, my friends, would you go to your neighbor and say, not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Everybody does that kind of stuff. No worries. It's fine. No. You'd say, 
You are not allowed to do you. That was intentional moral rebellion. That was wrong. Not just good or bad, but right and wrong. That was wrong. Well, if you and I know those categories, how much more God? And the problem, my friends, is that our things that we think are just mistakes and moments of missteps are not. They are moral rebellion against the Lord. And so God takes sin seriously. And this is why the servant is suffering as he is. He is dying, suffering in the place of his people. Substitution. Christ in the place of his people. Look at verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement or the discipline or punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's what we have here. We have the servant who substitutes himself in the place of his rebellious people. We break God's law. We twist God's law. We bend God's law. And God takes that with blood earnest seriousness because he is holy. Look at this significant language in verse 6 that's happening here though. It's not just that the Christ, this servant, this suffering servant is suffering. Notice what the Lord has done to him. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on this servant the iniquity of us all. So it's not just that the servant is undergoing punishment in our place. The servant actually has our iniquities, our sins placed on him by the Lord. By the Father. I know you know this language. I know Pat has told you this. This is imputation. This is imputation. Christ has been imputed with the sins of his people. He has been counted as sin for us. He has been reckoned as a lawbreaker in our place. The New Testament says that God made him who knew no sin. That is Christ to be sin for us. And what are the consequences of that? There is something absolutely inevitable that comes when sin is imputed to someone else. And that's what Christ suffers. Atoning death. Death as one who is counted as cursed. That is what is inevitable once God lays on Christ the sins of us all. Let's try to get at that with a little bit of a provocative question. How would you answer the question if someone came up to you and said, did Jesus deserve to die on the cross? How would you answer that? I hope your initial reaction is to say no. Because in himself, he is righteous. He's the law keeper. He is godly. He is the eternal son of God who was loved by the father from before the foundations of the earth. Doesn't deserve what he got. But in a very real other sense, did Jesus deserve to go to the cross and die? 
as one imputed with the sins of his people? Yes, he did. Anything short of that would be a misfiring of God's justice. To to reckon sin to a substitute and then that substitute not reap the penalty for that sin would be injustice. So the inevitable consequence of the father laying the sins of his people on the servant, on the son of God, is that he suffers inevitably, necessarily, to die as a curse for his people. The wages of sin is death. So this is what our substitute is doing. This is what this servant is doing. And that's the heart of his ministry. That is the heart of his death, is that he is suffering instead of his people. Sometimes we like to think, well, misery loves company. We, you know that phrase, misery loves company. We, you know what we want in our suffering, in our heart? We want someone with us in that who undergoes what we undergo. We want someone to lament with and grieve with and mourn with. We want someone with us in our misery. You know what misery loves more than company? Misery loves deliverance more than it loves company. Christ has not come alongside his people to just suffer with us, to give us an example of how to suffer well, to say, pick your chin up, cheer up, it's going to be okay. That's not how he saves his people. He saves his people not by suffering with us, but by suffering instead of us. In our place condemned, he stood. That's why this servant is suffering for the sins of his people. Third question, how does the servant respond then? Verses seven to nine, two things here. He is submissive and he is righteous. He was submissive. Look at verse seven. Look at these things that are happening to him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off. This is the, this is the sign of someone who things are happening to him. He is on the receiving end of this crushing blow. He is on the receiving end of this treatment. And yet, he is not a passive, helpless victim. What does Jesus say to his disciples in John's gospel? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What does a priest do in the Old Testament? Priests in the Old Testament are not inactive. They are supremely active. Hebrews 5.1 says that that priests offer sacrifice. They are active. They are doing things. So even in his submission to this oppression and affliction, Christ is in charge. He is offering himself for the sins of his people. So he's submissive, but he's also righteous. Look at verse nine. He is perfect in deed. Look at the end of verse nine. Although he had done no violence. Look down at verse 11. The righteous one, my servant, he is perfect. That is how he responds. Even in the midst of his suffering, he sins not. He is righteous and holy, even in the throes of agony for his covenant people. 
He's perfect indeed. He's also perfect in speech. Verse 9. No deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 7. Yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He's perfect in deed and in speech. That's how he responds. And that's what we sing about. We sing songs in Christian worship, singing just like we just did about the lamb who has been slain. It's not an embarrassment for the church to tuck away somewhere off to the side that we worship a savior who was crucified. That's not something to tuck away in the rafters somewhere. That's something to glory in because that's what's going on in heaven. Even as we sit here this morning, the angels are around the throne of God and they are not singing praises because Jesus was such a good teacher, though he was. They are not singing around his throne that Jesus was such a good life coach or an example, though he was a good example. They are singing around the throne, singing glory to the lamb who was what? Slain. He was slain. This is his glory. That's what heaven's worship sounds like. That's how this servant responds. Fourth and final question then, what are the results? This can't all be for nothing, surely. No one can suffer like this on God's behalf, on the people's behalf, and there be no results. What are the results of this suffering servant dying for the sins of his people? First of all, the result for Christ Jesus, the suffering servant himself. Verse 8, his death. He was cut off from the land of the living. He's assigned a grave, it says in verse 9, with the wicked. He poured out his soul to death, it says in verse 12. So you have Christ Jesus, the author of life, through whom all things were created, by the Word, by the Son. He is the author of life, and he is put to death as a result of being counted as sin for his people. What's the result for us? Verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. That's what the people of Israel have been looking for. That is what they have been told that they need. Isaiah chapter 1 says there is no peace among the people because they are horrendously rebellious against God. There is no peace between God and the people apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we like to think that there is. We like to try things that maybe will bring peace. We lower God's standard and we say, oh, it's just a dry, dusty book. It's outdated. It doesn't apply to me. God does not require that anymore. Or we try to magnify what we do and we say we are basically pretty good people, meeting a law that kind of has been lowered. You can see where this is going. If God's law is lowered and our, in a, our, and our ability is raised, look at that. We got a perfect fit here. And God says there is no peace that way. He even calls account the prophets and the priests and the leaders of God's people in the Old Testament who said, peace, peace, where there is no peace, who dress the wounds of his people lightly and don't point them to this suffering Servant, we need peace with God. But as your minister likes to say, 
as Pat likes to say, you're smoked. You're smoked. You and I are toast if we are left on our own to somehow find peace with God because we can't do it. And Christ, by his wounds, brings us peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as the suffering servant who died on the behalf of his people. So let's go back to that inevitable consequence, you could say, the inevitable result of that imputation. Christ, the sins of his people are laid on him, imputed to him. And what's the inevitable result of that? Death as one who is cursed. That, there, there is no break between those things. But look at what it says in verse 11. The many will be accounted righteous. There's the word. Christ's righteousness is imputed to his people. And that also brings an inevitable result with it. Just like Christ's imputation of sin to him brought with it an inevitable consequence and result of death as a curse, so the imputation of Christ's righteousness to his people brings with it a necessary result, and that is eternal life. So you come in here, and so do I, with baggage this morning. You and I come in here with sins that we have committed in the last week. Thoughts, words, deeds... Christ comes and he says to us in Romans 4 that that God justifies the ungodly. That's you and I. And if the godliness and the righteousness of Christ could not stop the inevitable result of imputation, death is a curse. So your ungodliness and mine and our unrighteousness week by week, day by day, It cannot deter the righteousness that we have accounted to us in Christ. Does that mean that you're going to be perfect in this life? No, far from it. You are called by the Spirit to put to death the sinful flesh, but always with the knowledge that my sins that I am working so hard against and your sins that you labor so hard to cut that root off. Those things that mark you as unrighteous cannot deter the, the, the inevitable result of being counted as righteous in Christ. And what's the result of that? Not death, life, eternal life with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unbreakable fellowship and joy and peace forevermore, doing what you and I were created to do as image bearers. We are image bearers who are meant to belong with God forever. We have games in our house like those little matching games. Kids, you know how to do those matching games where you flip all the cards over and then you try to find the matches that look like one another. You can think of that kind of in the way that we are image bearers of God. We are meant to be with Him. And Christ brings us to God. It's not just a status change from being unforgiven to forgiven. 
from being unsaved to saved. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? If we have hope in this life only, we are most of all to be pitied. But we don't have hope only in this life because of what Christ has done. He is the righteous one who brings us to God by his suffering as the inevitable result of being counted as righteous in Christ. So it's our transgressions, but his piercing. It's our iniquities, but he was the one who was crushed. It was his punishment that brought peace to his covenant people. And for that, we give him great joy and delight. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We are so thankful that it is clear and tells us how to, how to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Lord, we are so thankful uh, for the work of Christ finished on our behalf, that, that you laid on him the iniquities and sins of all of his covenant people that belong to him by faith. And he took them to the cross as one who was counted as cursed. Who was counted as sin for us. In order that we in him might be clothed with the garments of righteousness. So that we in this life, in this exile of life, this pilgrimage, this sojourning in this wilderness land as we await that heavenly rest and city. Lord, we have assurance based on what Christ has done, that we have absolute assurance that what he completes is completely done. And we are so thankful for that. We pray that you would raise our affections and our desires for that heavenly city, that heavenly rest where Christ will be with his people forever in endless glory and endless delight. This is our prayer and we pray with confidence, Lord, because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.